Okay. Why do I have to do the intro? Because it'll be, it's just like a special nice thing. Welcome to Wait, just... wait, give it a second. You gotta give it a moment of quiet for Jake. Welcome to Decision Space, the only show to take place right here in the space between the turns in your favorite games. I'm Maya Polin. And I'm Brendan Hansen. And this is the podcast about decisions in games. And in today's episode, we're doing a deep dive on Babylonia by Reiner Knizia. And I am joined by my wife, Maya. Maya, welcome back to the show. Thank you. And thanks so much for joining us. You know, you joined us for Cascadia, one of our past favorite games. And now uh, we have you back to talk about Babylonia. Listeners of the show, long time, will probably remember Maya and might also be wondering where Jake is. We miss you, Jake. We miss you, Jake. Jake is out, but he's going to be editing this episode. And I imagine he might chime in at some point just for something brief. But if not, we love you, Jake. We miss you. And we're so excited to be delving into Babylonia. So like always, I think let's get right into it, Maya, since I have a little bit more experience doing this. I'll read my ratings and review first, and then maybe you can off the cuff share your thoughts on Babylonia. Does that sound good? good? Okay, great. So Babylonia is a masterpiece that builds upon decades of design, synthesizing the core ideas of many of Kinesia's touchstone games. It accomplishes being far more than the sum of its parts and stands alone as one of the best games Dr. Kinesia has ever designed. While production hiccups might keep the overall product of Babylonia from being perfect, the game itself is about as close to it as anything I've played. Approachable, deep, engaging, wonderful. This one for me is a 10 out of 10. <laughs> but if we're taking into production, probably doesn't raise quite to those heights. How about Fima? Well, I have gone from a Babylonia hater to a Babylonia lover, and as I'm sure listeners of Decision Space understand, when it comes to Reiner Knizia games, I have no choice but to stand. However, <laughs> when I first opened the game and played, I was truly horrified by the, let's say, militaristic appearance inside of the box. Mostly the board. The board, yes. Once, once I got past that, and there are some other issues with the actual physical design that do impact play. But once you get past that and actually get into the game, it's so satisfyingly fighty and is so unique in terms of, at least for me, in terms of the pacing and how you just kind of crash to the end of the game. Mm. And that made me love it. So I'm going to go with 9 out of 10. Amazing. Jake here, chiming in from the edit. And I am very sorry to interrupt, but those scores really leave me no choice but to do this. This is what we like to call a Rhino Kaniz dance break. I'm so glad this game won you over. I would say it took, how many plays do you think it took to kind of win you over? Maybe seven? 
I remember you played being, a lot of games before you came around to Babylonia. Like, like anger plays. Anger plays, yeah. <laughs> Tired with a baby, rage plays with ba- Babylonia. Yeah, because I couldn't quite wrap my head around what was eluding me on the strategy side. Yeah. And again, the game ends so much more quickly than other tile laying games that there was something very addictive about that. Yeah. It makes you want to play it again almost immediately. Mm-hmm. Well, let's get into sort of the game background. So we always like to set the stage with the game background. This is a 2019 release from Ludo Nova, and which is a Spanish publisher who has had a few hits as of recently, but I would say Babylonia is one of their sort of breakouts. Though Babylonia, interestingly, uh, I would say is a game that right now has been gaining favor, but for the first couple of years of its publication was really sort of a cult hit for Kinesia fans. I think Kinesia fans have been so loud about it that finally sort of the broader community is sort of seeing, oh, wow, this is a Kinesia game that's kind of risen to the level of, I need to check this out, maybe if I'm not even a diehard. So it's getting the attention it deserves now in terms of the game itself. I think so. Yep. And this game is Babylonia is, of course, designed by Rainer Knizia, and it's a tile lane game sort of in the vein of Samurai or Tigris and Euphrates or Through the Desert, those classic tile lane games from the 90s that people love, or Blue Lagoon, one of the games he did that was sort of a refresh of the tile lane series. Uh, so Blue Lagoon, Yellow and Yangtze, and Babylonia are kind of the new games that follow in that design footprint. Gotcha. So it has a modernized feel and it, it includes elements of a lot of those games, but really stands on its own. So it's sort of remixing his own his own footprint while kind of synthesizing and creating something new. So let's have a quick overview of Babylonia. Babylonia is a medium weight tile laying game for two to four players that takes between 30 and 60 minutes to play. The game is played on a shared board that depicts the landmass of Babylon, trisected by the Tigris River and the Euphrates River. The board itself is marked by a hexagonal grid that denotes tile placement locations for players' tiles, and strewn across it are three key elements which also comprise the game's core scoring mechanisms, ziggurats, cities, and farms. Each player begins the game with a matching set of tiles in their personal player color, and randomly draws five of these tiles into their hand. This set of 30 tiles is made up of two different types of tiles, nobles and farmers, and the noble tiles come in three different types as well, heads, pots, and stars. More on that later. Each turn of Babylonia follows a simple structure. Players may place two tiles of any type to the board, or as many farmer tiles as they have, meaning there are real hand management decisions in Babylonia around curating the right hand of tiles. These tiles may be placed anywhere on the board, with some minor restrictions that I'll mention momentarily. Then after placing tiles at the end of each player's turn, they'll refill their hand back up to five tiles from their own personal supply. When placing tiles, players at the end of their turn also resolve scoring opportunities created through their placement of tiles. If players have a tile adjacent to a farm, they can place one of their farmer tiles onto the farm, claiming the farm and scoring the number of points depicted on the farm tile, ranging from five to seven points. There's also some special farm tiles that score points equal to the number of cities that have already been scored when the farm itself is scored, meaning that there's real timing considerations around when to score 
these farms in the game of Babylonia. Cities, on the other hand, depict between one and three of the noble types that I mentioned earlier, and score when they're fully surrounded on land by tiles. At this point, any players with tiles adjacent to the city score points equal to the number of tiles they have, showing that the matching noble symbol shown on that city connected to the city by an uninterrupted chain of tiles. For example, if we're scoring a city that showed pots and stars, and I have a combination of five pots and star noble tiles connected to that city in a chain, I'd score five points. Then the player with the majority of tiles around the city, directly adjacent to it, scores that city. And at that point, city scoring occurs, and each player scores points equal to the number of cities that they've already collected in the game. Because cities allow scoring through chains of connected tiles, it behooves players to try to arrange their tiles such that they'll be scored multiple times when different cities are scored. However, players also want to score cities early because each time a city scores, they score points for each city they've collected via majority. And this tension is one of the many at the heart of Babylonia that makes its decisions delightfully difficult to solve. Finally, there are ziggurats. While the location of farms and cities are randomly set up at the start of each game, ziggurats, in contrast, always go to the same locations. When players place tiles next to a ziggurat, they score one point for each ziggurat they have a tile next to. This encourages players to spread out, but like cities, ziggurats also scored when they're fully surrounded. The player with the majority of tiles around a ziggurat gets a choice of a special ziggurat power that might allow them to take another turn, gain 10 points immediately, unlock a new special placement rule that changes how they can place tiles on their turn, or increase their hand size from 5 tiles to 7 and more. These effects are powerful, and if used correctly, can totally reshape the course of a game of Babylonia. Ties in Babylonia also, importantly, both for cities and ziggurats, are broken such that no player receives the benefit, creating a lot of tension around scoring opportunities of cities and ziggurats. Players may create chains through river spaces that are trisecting the map. However, they may only do this on their turn when they choose to play two tiles, placing one of those tiles face down into the river, meaning creating chains through the river forces players to trade tempo for future scoring potential, so long as their routes aren't later blocked by other players. Babylonia is a highly interactive game defined not by direct conflict, but through the blocking of placement opportunities that ideally further your own pursuit of connections on the board while disrupting your opponent's plans. Play continues until the end of a player's turn when they no longer have any tiles left to place, or only one city or no cities remain at the board. When either of these conditions occur, the player with the most points is crowned the victor. Thank you so much for that incredible rules overview, Brendan. <laughs> Yeah, it's great to have you in on the fun. Okay, so Maya, at the start of all of these deep dives, one thing we always make sure to do is sort of characterize the decision space. So we want to talk about maybe the size and the and the depth of the decision space, how it feels to play this game, its type and our classic types. So I think now is a great time to get into that discussion. So do you want to sort of kick us off? Sure. I do think that the decisions are very, very deep, even in terms of maybe taking someone who's played a few games that don't have a ton of decisions to them. This could be that bridge because you have so many options yeah. every single turn. Like the entire board is open to you. There are not restrictions other than the, the strategic restrictions you put on your own decisions. Right. So that creates this like very broad open decision space where you could completely place anywhere on the board that I think you really do feel the depth. Every time we play, you can almost pursue it in a different way. Mm -hmm. Sort of core strategies that you're sort of building around that we'll get into 
but ultimately it feels like you're recreating your own approach to Babylonia in every gameplay, to me at least. It never, to this point, I think we've probably played 25 or 30 times. It doesn't feel like I'm in a regular rote pattern of play. Right, the decisions don't get stale and you're, you have to adjust your decision space based on what comes out and where the placements are. Right, right? because of the variable setup of the board and right. that sort of thing. Yep. And then for the type of decision space, this is our sort of classic waxing, waning, static, or dynamic. Oh, sure. Definitely waning. Yeah, right. So over time, right, the decision space starts incredibly open. You can place anywhere on the board, and there's all those cities and farms strewn about, and every space around every ziggurat on the board is open. So you have this complete and total flexibility, and the game really is this waning engine towards slowly but surely the options are cut off. And not only, right, so cities are being scored and taken off the map, people are claiming farms, they're filling up those ziggurat spaces, and also your potential to link things is waning because eventually people are going to block you from creating these large chains. Um, so you really feel that sort of waning arc, which I think appeals to you generally. We talk about trick-taking games as being something that is focused on that waning decision space. Or another game that we're going to cover on the show soon, My City, mm. also a waning decision space right. game that you really enjoy. So do you feel like that's part of what the joy, what you found eventually joy in Babylonia with was that sort of waning and the tension that comes from that? Maybe. I mean, just to kind of jump ahead to the feel of this particular game in terms of that the type of decision space. Um, I think that that really coming down to a point Mm. of decisions from you can grab a couple of points from so many different things in the beginning of the game, but by the end of the game, there's really, really only one thing that might even get you any points is very appealing in terms of upping the tension, upping the sort of crescendo of your investment in the game. And this sort of has the classic Kinesia tiling thing where you only do... Every action you do is so small on your turn. Uh, Typically, right, you can either play two tiles on your turn or as many farmers as you have. I think the farmer turns feel really bursty and you get to do a ton. Mm -hmm. But those turns where you're just playing two tiles, it feels like this incremental progress. So the game in feel really has a driving sense of momentum as you're sort of chipping away at these short-term plans, building towards these large scoring opportunities of cities that then end up being these sort of memorable moments in the flow of the game. So I would say in terms of feel, it's tense, It's but it's also dynamic as the board is filling up and kind of shifting based on maybe a farm scores earlier than you think and you kind of shift your plans around it. And I think like it's cutthroat, right? It is cutthroat. Not you don't have like the opportunity. The game isn't asking you to for the sort of opportunity of subterfuge, right? Like you're not tricking trying to get your opponents or opponent to go somewhere else. You're mm. you're really just thinking about your two actions again, except when there's farmers sure. and you can um really fuck shit up. Uh, sorry, <laughs> Jake, you might have to bleep that one. <laughs> yep. So other than that, you're you you sometimes you have to be responsive to what someone else does, but that probably means you're behind. Where mm. you're you're responding to what someone else is doing, but um you should really be furthering your own objectives, right. I feel like. Is that fair? I think so. And Babylonia is really interesting because I would say compared to the other tiling play games of that I've played of his, right? Blue Lagoon. 
Tigris and Euphrates through the desert. It, Babylonia makes it very clear who's in the lead at any given time. Yeah. Because there's a scoring tracker on the board. You're scoring at the end of everyone's turn. So the table really has a sense of who is in the lead at any given moment. And it kind of encourages that interaction. And right, You know you're behind. And I think if you're competitive or just engaging in the activity of playing a complicated game you are trying to catch up right. and it's so satisfying that you can yeah and it's really interesting so you haven't played you've played tigris and euphrates but it was very long time ago many moons ago 2014 or so so yes. you probably don't remember the rules clearly no. but one big difference between babylonia and tigris and euphrates is in tigris and euphrates you have kingdoms on the board where you actually have the potential to start wars with each other and you could take those tiles off the board. So you destroy the progress that other players have sort of placed out. Wow. Which you don't have in Babylonia, right? The fightiness of this game isn't from that sort of direct conflict interaction of undoing someone else's actions. It's from right. complete blocking of opportunity, which can feel just as bad. Right. But your, your pieces do stay on the board. I guess also now, let's just talk about the clarity of the decision space before we sort of move on to maybe the strategic path through the game and the scoring, which really makes it the heart of Babylonia. And I'm I'm curious to get your thoughts on this, Maya, because I, for me, part of the joy of Babylonia is that it feels very fuzzy early on, right? You have all of these options. There's so many viable ways to approach building out on the table where your network of tiles is going to go. And so much of what you do depends on what, if it's the right decision or not, depends on what your opponents do in response. Right. So I'm playing the specific variable board that's been set up. And I'm also trying to sort of get a sense for what directions my opponents might be wanting to go based on their positions as well. So it feels really fuzzy because it's often not possible to say this is the exact right move on a turn. Later on in the game, that definitely does happen at times, right? Maybe those really powerful farms. We saw that we played this game last night. Yeah, like it was really blurry last night, even though the board was so sort of formulaically set up yep. with all the farms clustered together, all of the big money, big cities clustered together, and then, you know, little one-offs kind of over in Siberia. Yeah, And even with the board set up that way... I like went all in on farms right away and I don't think it was clear for any of the other players if the choice was to compete for those farms or to go all in on cities yeah. um, or to, you know, focus on connections. That game was very interesting too because you identified that there was this cluster of farms that you could easily pick up with a early bursty farm turn. And I didn't realize that this was going to happen, but by doing that, you really disincentivized everyone else from sort of joining you in that part of the board. Mm -hmm. So then we kind of had to figure out, okay, how do we interact with Maya and try to stop her without just taking sort of nothing burger moves right. that don't advance our own positions? But then I was talking about the clarity because so much of that game was sort of trying to find our way through this really fuzzy space. But then there was that one turn Teresa had, my aunt, my aunt right? Um, where she identified she could score 29 points off claiming two of the big farmer cities just because we kind of all left them on the table for too long or the farms that scored for cities. Right. So that was a really clear decision that felt really rewarding. It was this really ba bombastic moment. So that's something I love about this Babylonia too, I think, Maya, is that it's so fuzzy until it's not fuzzy at all. It feels like this complete win. Mm -hmm. And that juxtaposition of really fuzzy decisions and really clear decisions happens so organically in the game. Right. And so we'll 
I think we'll turn towards scoring now, yeah. but the, that really gets at why the clarity is fuzzy or as I like to say, blurry, because, right, like I love that it's not this straightforward points optimization at that turn level, right? Teresa had 29 points. Like, wow, amazing. In but, one turn, yeah. But ultimately, she still should have chosen to turn her strategy to mm. something else as opposed to let me get this huge points pickup because she still couldn't catch up. In the end. In sure. the end. Like maybe expanding further, losing one of those opportunities would have been the right path because she can't, yeah, ultimately none of us can Right, catch and you. as someone yeah. who plays games with someone who just, you always, you, Brendan, always sure. know like what's going to get you the most points. And I definitely appreciate that there's more here. Mm. Yeah, you like games where you can't just solve a given turn. Correct. Yeah. Outside of maybe Cascadia. Uh, uh, right. There's an exception to everything. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so as you said, Maya, I think now is a really natural time to move in the, to scoring and strategic paths because Babylonia is so much defined by these three sort of pillars that I talked about a little bit in the rules of overview, but they're all interconnected and overlaid on one another. So the if there is a puzzle that's unsolvable at the heart of Babylonia, it's the puzzle of reconciling how to pursue all of these things in a way that's going to maximize your points. But it's an impossible puzzle because you can't know when to pursue what. So those things are cities, right? Cities are those tiles on the board that you're trying to score for majority so that when you, so that basically when the city is fully surrounded on land, the player who has the most of their own tiles adjacent to that city gets to claim it. And then right. all cities score every time a city is scored. So you want to get lots of cities early. But then also... The points exponentiate. Right. Yeah. But then also you want to build big chains around them. Right. Because you're also getting points from the individual tiles that happen to surround and or are connected to each city. So there's two mechanisms by which you score from cities. Great. Same with ziggurats, right? So there's ziggurats on the board that you also try to surround and then claim for special ziggurat powers. But you also, if you choose to spread out across the ziggurats, that's, that's the same thing where your points exponentiate based on how many ziggurats you're next to. So once again, you're having to choose between if you want to get the points from spreading out or if you want to focus on one to get the points from a special power. Sure, because, okay, so let's clarify that some. Ziggurats, again, whenever you place next to a ziggurat, you get one point for every ziggurat you're next to. So if you focus on scoring one ziggurat, every tile you place around it is just going to get you one point. But if you spread out, uh, all of a sudden you might be getting three or four or five points every time you place a tile next to a ziggurat. So there's real tension there. But ziggurats like cities, when they're fully surrounded on land, the player who has the most tiles around them gets to claim one of those special powers that you mentioned. And these powers completely have the potential to reshape how you play. If you get one early, you can really build your strategy around them. We're going to talk about them more later on, but okay. there's things where, say, you can it changes the tiles you can place on the table and that sort of thing. So it increases probably the point potential of your future turns in a way that's really interesting. So there's this tension between do I spread out and maybe not get special powers from ziggurats but get a lot of points from placing my tiles? Or do I try to finish a ziggurat early and use that to get more points later. So that's another core tension. So like Maya highlighted, now cities and ziggurats really have these two considerations just within each of those mechanisms that are core tensions that are pulling at one another. Mm -hmm. And again, cities and ziggurats are juxtaposed. Because if you're pursuing scoring cities, you're probably not pursuing scoring ziggurats. 
And in terms of like scoring being dynamic in this game, even though ziggurats stay in the same place on the board, unlike cities and farms, which you lay out randomly, um, even in terms of ziggurats, I would say you are normally a ziggurat parasite and spread out in a rude way. And I am generally going for one and feel that mm. that's the one I'm going for and stay away. And I would I would say that depending on those other dynamic elements, um, that one or the other is often right in terms of points. Right. Like the just the given setup of the board, depending on what's near the ziggurats, either kind of incentivizes you to spread out or maybe incentivizes you to focus and finish one. And you kind of can parse it, mm-hmm. but it's not always possible. Yeah, I think that's true. I have a hard time just not wanting to get three points for every tile I place, right? I it know. feels like I know good you. immediate value compared sure. to what yeah. Um but then there's also times where maybe I have a hand of farmers and I just want to finish a ziggurat. Right. Because then you can take a double turn and get a lot of tempo right. momentum off of it. Okay, should we talk about farms now? It's the same with farms, right? So depending on the board setup, farms might be sort of nicely interspersed with our cities, or sometimes there's, you know, farmland where a bunch of the farms live. These are all clustered together in variable setup on the board. Right. And farms require you to put a farmer on a farm tile, and then you take the farm and you automatically get those points. Yep. So especially in the beginning of the game, that can be a way to get more points than some of the other turns before you've built up momentum around cities or started placing enough um, tiles that you're scoring ziggurats. Yeah. Farms are really interesting too. So cities and ziggurats have a really clear way in which there's these two immediate sort of tensions that are opposed with each other with how they work. And I think farms have that a little bit, but not quite as much because there's the numbered scoring farms that you mentioned, and then also there's the farms that score based on the number of cities that have already been scored. Mm -hmm. So there's sort of two ways that they work, but functionally those are just variable point farms that they're really interesting, right? but it doesn't quite, we'll talk about them more later, it doesn't quite fit into this dual framework. But I think for farms, there's this framework of, do I want to score farms just to get the points early, right? The seven right. points for a turn is really great. Mm-hmm. Um, so do I just claim that I have to already have a tile next to a farm? So maybe I take a little bit of a downbeat, but then I yeah, grab the next farm. it is a downbeat. Yeah, yeah, so do I chase the farms early or do I kind of wait and see where my network is, then use my farmers to collect a bunch of farms and connect my network? Mm-hmm. I think that's really the core tension of farms, right? Am I pursuing them discreetly or am I trying to wait and pick them up as part of my network? So if... Cities and ziggurats have these clear inherent dual tensions. Farms kind of just offer an extra overlaid push-pull in between them that force you to consider, oh, is now a turn where I have to go take a farm? Does now feel like the right turn in terms of optimizing my timing? In Babylonia, if it's about anything, it's about it's a game of time. Can I say the river thing? Say the river thing. A big complaint I have about Babylonia is tangentially related to farms. And timing. Yes. which So you can be in a different decision space when it comes to the farms based on if your farms are near the river or not. Because there is a rule that you – when you have a big turn where you're playing your farmers instead of your two other tile types, noble tiles – you cannot place one of your farmers in the river, which is very frustrating because that means that even when you're having a big farmer turn where you can finally link up two different parts of your game board that you've been wanting to connect 
You can't lay that farmer in the river. And for me, if I could have any wish, it would be that we have a house rule in our house (laughs) where we just can lay a farmer in the river because it would just up my satisfaction so much to be able to do that. But I've been told no time and time again. To clarify a little bit, you can put (laughs) farmers in the river. Sure, but you have to do it in when you're on a turn where you play two tiles. When you play two tiles, so it takes away that satisfying burst forward that farmers give you. Yeah, and we go back and forth on this all the time, but I think that this mechanism that you can't play farmers face down to the river on a turn where you're playing lots of farmers is a really important way to balance the impact of those big farmer turns, which are already pretty high. But you haven't tried it. I'm just saying if anyone (laughs) wanted to play a round of Babylonia with me where we tried the house rule, I think that would be great. And I think we would see farmers having an even more outsized impact, right? Early farmers might be even more fortunate in terms of luck. Sure. Like in the two-player board, right? We've talked about the importance of controlling that central peninsula on the left. Okay. If you draw into early farmers early, all of a sudden, maybe you make connections that really crush your opponent even harder. Right. Okay. Well, we've kind of been getting into the rules anyway. Yep. 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 What, what do you want to talk about next? You just... Oh, the rules, yeah. I was saying we were yeah, you, you moving had a, towards rules. You had a beautiful transition that I, yeah, that was great. <laughs> and then I totally missed what you were going for. So you were, you're wanting to talk about this sort of the rules experience of learning and then also maybe a difference of perspective that we have about whether the rules are of Babylonia are a lot to take in. Yeah, I would say this is where we're going to have trouble in paradise or uh, trouble in Babylon. Great, yeah. Okay, so my view... I'll go first, is that I think that Babylonia, the chief accomplishment of Babylonia is that it has this rules simplicity, uh, the rules complexity to depth ratio is just so high. It's higher than almost any game I've ever played, right? The number of rules that are in the game, the rule book is like four pages or less. I basically taught you the whole game in the rules overview, minus maybe one or two little exceptions with the special scoring powers. Um, but it's just mind-blowing, the depth-to-complexity ratio of Babylonia. It's even higher for me than something like Tigris and Euphrates due to a lot of the edge cases around wars. Uh, so I think the real accomplishment is that it's Kinesia at his best, right? It's Kinesia doing the thing he does. Simple rules, deep gameplay, but like the best version of that possible for me. If there's anything you walk away from this episode with, it's that I at least think that it's this amazing study and rules simplicity and depth that emergently comes out of it. But Maybe this is like a philosophical distinction because it, when I'm listening to you talking, it sounds like you're talking about rules as sort of specific to mechanisms in the game. And I definitely agree that there is this incredible simplicity to the openness we were talking about. You know, you play two of your nobles yep. or you play all your farmers. Sure. Um, and you, you put down the pieces wherever you want. So, in, and those kinds of adages that make this the simple mechanisms, I agree. Where I disagree is when I think of scoring as part of the mm. rules of a game. So I don't know if that's a, a philosophical distinction or if that is considered part of the rules. It's I don't think it's... Fair to say that you, in terms of the mechanisms of this game, absolutely, this this is one where you could sort of lead someone who hasn't played many games before through it. Right, like we did with my mom and Teresa. Right, who absolutely, um, you know, like we said, Teresa had a 29-point turn, so she certainly gave us 
quite a run for our money, like the first time she played. Sure. Um, you know, and it was late at night and she'd been caring for our crazy toddler all day. So I don't know that she had all of her mental And she picked it up. And she certainly game. picked it up. So yep. I hear you. But I don't know if she was following the complexity of scoring, which leads to not um, having the command of strategy that where the game really opens up yeah. in terms of the depth of the decision space. So learning mechanisms, fine. Is it fair to paraphrase that partially what you're saying is because the game is so fuzzy, the decision space, mm-hmm. the consequences of your actions based on the scoring rules are not immediately clear. So knowing what you might want to do is really hard. So learning the game the first time, the combination of the fuzziness of the decisions and just because of the way scoring works it can be a little bit hard to keep everything that you might want to do in your head. Yeah. And this is compounded by the fact that City score in not one but two ways. Ziggurats kind of score in not one but two ways. So right. there's a lot within each rule. There's sort of sub-scoring rules that are kind of a lot. And then things like the City scoring, where whenever City score, you score one point for every City you scored. That's sort of like a classic Kanitia rephrasing of a rule, right? Where So that rule basically on paper says... Whenever you, the first player to score a city, that city is worth the number of cities on the board that have not yet been scored still. Yeah. Okay. So I think we maybe have done the thing where we've convinced each other by talking because hearing you talk now, I feel... It's pretty simple. Right. Like on a rule rule level, like on face value, it's simple. Right. And so end of it the the simplicity is there again in terms of the rule on its face it's like one of your games it's like enchanted plumes you there there's a variability to the end of babylonia where you more than one thing can end a game of babylonia Mm, sure so that's a pretty simple rule to say can you say what the rule is the rule is either one player has completely they've played all their tiles or there's one or fewer cities left on the board at the end of a player's turn Right. Those are the two end game conditions. Right. So on on its face, that's a simple rule. However, once you are a seasoned player, you can use that to change the tempo of the game, change your strategy, mm. push towards an even faster end of a game where the end sort of comes up faster than any other deeply strategic game like this. Yep. And I do think – I see your point too, right? When you say a rule like – when you score ziggurats, you score one point for every ziggurat you're next to. That's really straightforward to us, us who play games all the time. Mm-hmm. But it's the type of rule that can be a little bit hard to wrap your head around initially. Right. And like, I think why that's, am I getting three points from this? I'm yeah, just playing one. Why right. are you suddenly giving me three points? Exactly. Right. Um, and ultimately you get there. And I think this is an incredibly approachable game. But there's a little bit to wrap your head around. So one of the things about this game that I really love is the hand management around your tiles. So in a lot of Canizia tile lane games, you either, like in Blue Lagoon, you just play the same type of tiles over and over again Mm -hmm. with a little bit of variation in the huts that come out or maybe you're choosing the camels that you're placing in Through the Desert. Yeah. Or in Tigers and Euphrates, there's four. It's very similar to Babylonia, actually, because there's four types of tiles that you could have in your hand. They're from a shared pool, not a personal pool like in Babylonia. Um, But in Babylonia... Don't you have to place at the beginning in Tigris and Euphrates, like through the desert? Actually, no. uh, kind of. You have these leaders that you're putting on the board that impact when I you see. can score. So it's a little bit different. Um, so it's not as open in decision space. You kind of 
it's similar to how you kind of make early commitments like in Through the Desert. Sure. That you are then pursuing and where you make those early commitments with your leader can really inform your strategic path through the game. Right. Whereas in Babylonia. Yeah. See, you're yeah. not constrained by, you know, you can truly start over if you really decide that's what you want to do. Sure. Maybe early on you pursue a ziggurat and then you kind of abandon the ziggurat strategy. Right. The, if the ziggurat parasite swoops in, you <laughs> make other plans. But let's talk about the tile play uh, in yes. Babylonia some. Yeah. Because everyone has this personal supply of tiles. There's 30 tiles. Mm. Uh, and 18 of them are nobles, right? right? They come in those three types, pots, the headmen, and stars. These are actually called like merchants, civil servants, and priests. But we always <laughs> just refer to them by pots, headmen, and stars. Yeah, I just learned. Wow. Yeah? Mm-hmm. You, you don't want to sit at the table and say, oh, the, this <laughs> one scores for civil, civil servants. servants. <laughs> yeah. Also, your tiles are technically called your clan tiles, and we've never actually called them clan tiles. No, no, no. It's just like your, you know, your family within sure. Babylonia as you're trying to establish. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Gotcha. Your your pots, headmen, and stars. Okay. <laughs> so you have these 18 noble tiles and then your 12 farmers. So you have more farmers than any individual type of noble tile, but more noble tiles overall than farmers. Right. And it never feels like you have more farmers than the nobles. nobles. <laughs> because so much of the flow of the game, the decisions around it are building up. Based on how many farmers you happen to have. Right. Because you wouldn't typically take a turn where you play two farmers down, though it might happen. And you wouldn't typically take a turn where you play one noble and one farmer, though Mm -hmm. it definitely might happen. Because, again, the decision space is so deep that there's times in this game Mm -hmm. where you definitely want to do that. But overall, in terms of optimally optimally moving through your tiles, you want to be building up to a hand of three farmers or four farmers or maybe even five farmers, Crazy. and then playing all of those at once. So those decisions around when to take an offbeat and maybe play a farmer early or when to right. save up really matter. And I think are for me, one of the most interesting parts of the game yeah. is like judging the board and then also judging my hand and finding the right, right decision for this turn, but also next turn and the turn after that based on what I might draw. And the same is true for the pops and the stars and, and the hats, right? Because... You, you can sort of think strategically around if you've kind of started setting up clusters or if you've been cut off from part of your part of your setup yep. by another player, you sort of move some of what you happen to have in your hand towards another outpost, yep. a star outpost, for example. And one thing that I love about Babylonia Mai is that because you only have six nobles of each, six is a small enough number. That it's, it's really small. Yeah, it's pretty, and it's easy enough to keep in your head the sort of rough probability of maybe drawing into one of these nobles. So if you start with three of your stars early on, you kind of know that it's you're unlikely to draw into another star probably until later in the game, right? You know. Well, yeah, but I think you're starting to get a sense for that, too, as we've played like 25, 30 games. Mm-hmm. Oh, I drew into a lot of stars early. So right. where can I optimally position these stars on the board? Sure. Because I know that later on in the game, I'm probably not going to draw into them. Sure. And I think that's really interesting. It really impacts what position you want to move into on the board. Because it- once those scoring opportunities are gone, unless you can connect them to new cities that match that symbol, right? your scoring opportunity with those tiles is gone. Do you feel like you can win Babylonia without connecting most of your nobles? Most of my pieces? Yeah. Yeah. I think it... So one of the things about Babylonia that's so fun, right, is 
you're trying to solve the puzzle of which of these things do I do a little bit more? Where do I specialize a little bit? And I think that given the right board, there's definitely viable strategies around, let's say you draw a lot of farmers early, so you can do a, a ziggurat burst really spread out, get ahead on ziggurats, maybe disincentivize other people from getting in on some of those ziggurats, and then using those ziggurats to maybe pick up a power, score a bunch of points, and then pivot into a late game that's more around farms, mm. where you've, you're sort of using your nobles to pursue scoring farms, and you're leeching off of the fact that other people are investing energy into scoring cities, so you're going to pick up your city scoring points through taking the farms, not necessarily the nobles. And you play this more disparate tactical sort of pokey game mm. than trying to create chains. I think that can work, but I don't know that it can work on every board that you would ever play on, right? Just given the variable setup of tiles, you would need the tiles to come out in a certain way that kind of pushes a subset of the players towards cities and leaves space for you to pursue that strategy. What do you think? And well, and this is why when, you know, thinking about sort of hand management with the tiles. Right. And that. Why yeah. I feel like you have to ultimately be a generalist to win mm. this game. Like you said, if you said specialize a little bit. Right. But I just think you have to, you have to be working both in farms and nobles. I think there's times, though, where some of the ziggurat tiles might let you push in a strategic direction even Definitely. harder, right? So, like, yeah. maybe you get an early farm tile rack of farmers where you get to play three or four. That lets you score the little ziggurat in the northwest mm -hmm. part of the board that only has four connections. Yeah. Use that to then grab the city bonus one, and then you build your whole strategy around just pursuing cities then, right? right. So you're doing, like, a ziggurat, one ziggurat. And then you're all in on cities and you're going to try to build an early city advantage yeah. that sort of spirals. And maybe and that how works. did that go for you last night? Well, I got the tile too late. <laughs> so last night it didn't work well, but it's worked at times. It's definitely worked before. Yeah. You're right. And I think it works especially well, right, when that specific ziggurat has a city next to it. Yep. So then your tiles are adjacent to it and you can kind of use that to continue your momentum. Right. So it's all about kind of finding the, the right path through the decision space where you can get a little bit of momentum in pursuing one thing that connects to these other scoring paths and you can keep that momentum going. Mm -hmm. And then you start, like you were saying earlier, forcing your opponents to respond to you, right? You get ahead, you force them to take a turn that doesn't advance their goals as much but hinders yours. Right. And all of a sudden you're getting ahead even more. Right. And we've kind of talked about the farm bursts, but I think that that's, you know, important in terms of the hand management too it's pretty hard and it takes a lot of luck and persistence to wait i don't know that i've personally ever gotten five farmers i think maybe you have but i would i feel like four is the burst and you can get a lot done with three as well and sometimes setting up a if you wanted to set up one with all of five you might have to take an offbeat turn where you sort of play a farmer and a noble get kind of lucky and usually that would be suboptimal you wouldn't want to do that yeah but i think one cool thing about this farmer strategy, or the way the farmer math works, mm. is when you end up with three, that feels great. And that's a really impactful turn. But it's probably optimal if you only have three, that means you have two other nobles. It's probably still optimal to play those other two nobles and try to get more farmers. But maybe within the timing considerations of the game, mm -hmm. it would be more impactful to play those three farmers. And that's a really interesting decision that... I think why so much of the, for me, the skill in Babylonia comes from decisions like that where, okay, it feels more efficient to wait, but is now the turn with the right impact? Or is it going to be even more impactful if I do take that offbeat turn? 
I don't put my three farmers down now. And wait. And wait. Because, mind you, by the time it gets back to you, if it's a three-player turn or a four-player turn, there's a lot of tiles that are going to get added to the board. So where you wanted to put your farmers with that three-farmer burst might no longer be a viable option. So right. what you're doing with four, what's that new plan that will work for it? Right. And that's really fun. The the math leading to conflict and, inter- and interaction is wild, right? Like, yeah. I don't know how often you would do this, but the fact that if you did wait for that five and someone did have one spot, one noble down on a ziggurat. Oh, and you could finish it? You could. If yeah. you wanted to be the big jerk, you could play all five of your farmers and take that ziggurat. And that's such a sort of beautiful way the math contributes to every aspect of conflict, which this game is rife with. It's also, the farmers are so great because they lead to these hugely impactful turns that for me are what partially set Babylonia apart, right? Like you so much feel the impact of those farmers and you feel not only the impact of, okay, I'm going to take this really big turn where I decide to encircle a ziggurat, get a special power, take another turn. You also feel, okay, I used all my farmers to do that and I didn't use them to go get farms and I didn't use them to score cities. So it feels amazing, but you really feel the opportunity cost because Mm -hmm. of how interconnected everything is. And I think that that's part of the fun is sort of not knowing if it was the right decision to the end. Yep. And then getting to kind of iterate and explore. Like the exploration mm-hmm. of Babylonia is it lends itself to just being played over and over and yep. over. And I think that that's Top-notch. why I love it. Mm-hmm. Is it feels like this game is one we'll play for a decade. Yeah. Or longer. Yep. You know? Um okay, so we've talked a lot about the farmers and how they create these memorable moments and There's so much at the heart of that timing puzzle and how there's sort of the interconnective glue between the other two strategies, too, in a way. But maybe what you can talk about, they sort of naturally lean towards that discussion, the conflict that arises. Because oftentimes when you're feeling conflict in Babylonia, sometimes it will come at one of those farmer turns. Because if you're blocking with just two tiles, sometimes you're planning for your opponents doing that, right? But sometimes you can be surprised by your opponent laying down three or four farmers they can block off a whole path that you're maybe planning on. And it feels kind of like a surprise attack on you and your plans um, as you have to then solve the problem of what else do I do? There's also just enough cities that you can win with. There's enough city spots that only have three or four surrounding Sort of at the edges. At the edges where that conflict really does come out with nobles too. Um, because someone sort of surprise swoops in to a city that you've already laid claim to. Yep. Um, there's conflict around someone finishing a city that you didn't expect them to. There's conflict even in terms of if they play the same number of tiles that you already have laid down, no one scores the city. Um, everyone loses that kind of conflict. Yep. And so... Let's talk about that a little bit more because I think that's another really interesting emergent sort of gameplay thing that comes out of the simple rule set, which is that what Maya just said, right? When you are scoring a city, if you're tied in terms of the majorities of tiles around them, no one gets to take that city in front of them and keep it for city scoring in the future. And it also means that that city scoring isn't triggered. Um, so if one person got really far ahead on city scoring, right, they have seven cities scored and you and everyone else at the table only have two. Every time a city gets scored, they're going to get seven or eight or nine points, right? 
or seven points over and over again if they're not scoring new ones. And that can be a hard snowball to stop. Mm -hmm. But if you can then force future cities, right, to maybe other players at the table are going to pursue the ziggurats that are left in the farms and kind of force ties on cities, all of a sudden this huge potential of points that they felt they had, you're like chipping away, you're chipping away at it because they're not scoring seven points every time a tile comes. And then all of a sudden you really feel that. So it's this another tool of interaction that you have that it's kind of like this blunted way to interact, but it can actually feel really sharp at times if there's this disparity in city scored at the table. Like there's nothing more frustrating yeah. than in a two-player game. I have you have a bunch of cities, and all of a sudden I'm just trying to force ties over and over again. Right. And it's interesting because if you are keeping pretty even with your cities, then the cities can almost feel like a red herring in certain games, mm. right? Like you're if you're a few ahead, there are certain games where it ultimately becomes much more about other elements that ends up having someone break away and win. Yeah. Um, however, if you get behind and don't have that exponential energy pushing you towards those little bits of points every time, then you're you're fighting the whole time. The feel of the way the city scoring mechanism plays out is so fun too, right? Because whenever city score, all players score. So it kind of engages everyone in the game. Yeah, Every I time agree. a city is scored, you you all are sort of seeing, okay, how, are, how did our position within the game change? Mm-hmm. And then it's fun to kind of get pushed a little bit ahead yeah. every time. Um, right. Even from Especially, a psychological perspective. Yeah. Um, I think that that is a big differentiator for me. I mean, we've played this game, you know, there's other times that we've played this game where it's been, I mean, we once hosted a youth who kept a more youthful schedule than us when we had a little baby and we, this nice youth happened to pick this game at like 11 at night. (laughs) Yeah, awesome. Brennan and I both looked at each other like with panic in our eyes because we were like, do we have Babylonia in us right now? Like, But you always do because that incremental investment Mm. You don't, like, for me, I've had games of Blue Lagoon or other games where I just kind of bow out psychologically um, and never with Babylonia. Yeah, so it, I think kind of what you're getting at is just there's so much happening on the board in terms of what you're needing to look at and the scoring interaction that it's just a very engaging game. Turns happen so quickly that there's not enough time to kind of check out Mm -hmm. in the way that maybe in, in Blue Lagoon, too, you're... Or just other games where you're really behind, I think sometimes you can check out and you don't with Babylon. Yeah. Well, I think part of it too is, right, in Blue Lagoon, your plans can become very obvious, right? The decision space can go from fairly fuzzy to very clear. Like what you need to do, you're just... Um, sort of orchestrating the plans you've already set in place for yourself. And in Babylonia, that even doesn't happen to the until very like end. Maybe, yeah, even your last turn. Even your last turn, there might be a value judgment between two things, and you're trying to wait and see where to go. Right. Maybe the very final turn of the game, there's that's the solvable turn, but that's kind it's of the last only one. one. Yep. And then I, I will say one other decision I want to highlight around the conflict of city scoring that I think is so interesting that we'd be remiss not to mention for people who haven't played it is just what we talked about earlier, where, okay, Early on in the game, there's one of those little cities that scores uh, just being surrounded by three. And it's by placing a tile next to that one, you could connect your your nobles to another city. So that's a really juicy early game decision around, am I pursuing the city scoring strategic path? I'm going to put two on the board that are next to that city and kind of lay my claim to that city, but then I'm not connecting to 
future cities. I'm leaving myself open to be blocked. Maybe I'll have to go around. I'm definitely going to be cut off from at least something because everything anyone plays cuts you off from at least something. That's another thing. There's the design of the board is so brilliant mm-hmm. um, that even early on, you're having to make these really tense, interesting decisions that fit so perfectly within. And I think that's just really fun too. Like right off the bat, you're feeling and seeing the impact. And you might, based on the tiles that you have, push in one direction or the other. Yeah. And I, th- I mean, there are just certain spots, like the ziggurat spot, that's the ziggurat spot that you can get with just four. Mm-hmm. Obviously, that's appealing. Yep. But you have to know that you're signing up for additional conflict and additional interaction because there's no way someone isn't going to compete with you for that. Whereas if you just start on the larger ziggurats, there's a chance that you'll be left alone for a little while. Sure. Or maybe if you start in a bigger ziggurat, someone will just smack down a bunch of farmers and block you. Well, right. We talk, I mean, yeah. exactly. The game always has that threat yeah. because of the brilliance of the math. And ziggurats have tie- these ties as well. So whoever has a majority mm-hmm. uh, gets to claim one of these special powers. But if there's a tie, no one gets no it. No one gets a special power. Oh, it hurts. So that also kind of means if there's a player in head who has pieces next to lots of ziggurats already, mm-hmm. they're kind of incentivized to keep playing to block ziggurats right. to prevent other players from getting powers. And they're just scoring lots of points off them. Right. So it kind of encourages that. Should and we- you, yeah, we should talk about it because you, I feel that the way that you parasite... <laughs> Means that you have like a bit of a different perspective on the special powers where you're sort of more open to maybe taking a bunch of different ones based on when you're the position you're, of the game. Yeah. And for me, there are certain ones that I'm really trying to get early because um, I consider them to be much better than others. Awesome. So that's we're going to go through the ziggurat powers one by one now. There's really seven core powers and two advanced powers that we'll just touch on really briefly, but we're going to go through them one by one. So the first one in the game is the score 10 points. This one's fine. It's like a tactical grab late game. If someone just hasn't scored a ziggurat, it's kind of there for all these other cards aren't going to impact what I could do. So I'm just going to score an extra 10 points. I think this one, the least interesting one in the game, but I'm glad it exists. And I like, I'm often, I'm likely to take it. You think so? Yeah. Yeah. Why do you think that is? Um, 10 points is a lot. 10 points is a lot. You're and usually scoring around 100 points in the game of Babylonia. So it could be 10% of your score. Yeah. And even mid game, um, if, you know, depending on how your tiles have broken, we'll, we'll get into some of the other ones where that's a big factor. Yep. Um, so this one is a sort of nice, reliable standby um, that can almost fit into any strategy. Yep. So the next one is the take a double turn action. And again, you're getting these powers when you surround a ziggurat if you have the majority of tiles. I didn't say it right at the start of this. Then you get to claim one of these powers. There's They're all available at the start of the game. So you're just picking from one of them. There's a variant where maybe you use all nine and you deal seven of them that gives some variety. And one of the reasons that sometimes people prefer to play that way is this next tile, which is take a double turn. At the end of this turn, you're going to take another turn immediately. Uh, this tile is inarguably very strong. I think it's the strongest it's tile in the, the game. It's definitely the strongest one. Um, at the right time, there's really no bad time to have this tile, right? It, for a game that's so much about timing and getting your positions on the board early really matter because of the blocking, it just makes a power like this very, very strong. I don't think it's... Some people online might sort of say that it's broken. I don't mm. think it's broken, but I do think it's really strong. And early on, I'm hard-pressed to take something else 
unless there's a really clear reason why I want to take one of the other powers that gives me a wholly new ability. I think that this is a really strong first pick. So folks are saying it's broken based on what it does for your pacing and what it does um, just for your momentum, not for scoring. Like it's certainly not broken in terms of scoring, but but in terms of of what it means for – where you are positioned it has compared this, like, to your other players. Right. It creates this like long shadow that your future scoring opportunities are just so much better because you've connected more. Or, yeah. yeah. Or maybe you just use it to then take another ziggurat power, denying someone else the chance to get a ziggurat because you have a big burst turn that follows it or something. It's the generational wealth of ziggurat cards. Yeah, for sure. It's the generational wealth of ziggurat cards. Yeah. Do you want to do the next one? So the next one is taking seven. You're, you you change the hand management game with this one. You can fill your – what are these called? Your like tile rack. Your tile rack back up to seven instead of five. Um, it's your so hand of tiles. It's really interesting in terms of all the conversations we've been having around farmers, farm births. And even when you're playing around with creating little different patches of nobles because you just have that many more options, right? Like if you're really waiting for that star, you're really waiting for that fourth farmer and you suddenly have seven instead of five, it can make a really big difference. Yeah, we've talked a lot in the episode about how many Babylonia just feels, especially early on, like you have an immense amount of options. But the Mm -hmm. one thing that might restrict that is the tiles that you have. So this opens it up even more because with seven, you have almost always access to a tile type you need. I would take it if I'm feeling like I'm having an unlucky game of Babylonia Mm. and I sort of want to neutralize and just like tell myself I'm, you know, I'm doing everything I can to focus on strategy. I think this one on face value feels like it's going to be so strong, but ultimately it's just really good. It does make getting to those really bursty farmer hands, like playing five tiles a little bit easier. If you get it first and you haven't gotten any farmers, maybe I would consider it. Yeah, and it's just that there's almost always better choices. Yeah. Okay, so this next one is if you claim this tile, you you can play, if you have one of each noble in your hand, you can use that as a placement option instead of just playing two or playing as many farmers as you have. So if you play a star, a pot, or a head, all of a sudden, you're allowed to play three tiles on a turn. I really like this one. This one also is very good with the one we just described. If you can get these both at the same time, there's a lot of synergy there. Uh, this obviously is better the more noble tiles you have still in your board. So if you start with early farmers, drawn to farmers again, if you can use those to then claim a ziggurat and get this power, that can be a lot of momentum early on. I like this one more than you, I think. And if anyone was wondering how this one and the next one interact with my proposed house rule, <laughs> no, it does not fix the problem of not being able to play and face down in a river when, unless you play two tiles, yeah. one face down a river, because the, the card specifies that you can now play three nobles face up yep. instead of two. Yep. Okay, so then this next one I think is, it's also interesting. It's another accelerator mechanism this says if you play three or more farmers you also get to play a noble that tags along so this is another one that's just good it's one that you just sort of grab if you have a nice mix of tiles left still i feel the same way about this one where if i'm looking to have luck stop being such a factor in my game um i would consider this one it wouldn't be my first choice and then the this next one is says that you can, for instead of having to have a tile next to a farm and place a farmer on it to claim the farm tile, the crop field, you can now place a noble directly onto a, a crop field, a farm, to claim it. So this one to me feels 
very specific in its use. I think this is my least favorite Why tile. would I ever choose this? Okay, so this is for games in which card. there's the board is set up so all the cities are in one place and all the farms are sort of spread out maybe. So they don't get scored until late game. And you see a position where you can just pick up a bunch of farms right fairly and, quickly. And those having a noble there would maybe enhance your connection. And maybe would enhance your connection or something. Yeah, I think this is the most niche, probably the least interesting sure. for us. Uh, then there's my favorite one that says whenever cities are scored. <laughs> I really like this one because it's strategically. It's one of my least favorite. I think it's cool because it, it enables a different strategy. So that's yes. why I like this one. When you when city scoring occurs, the city scoring that's not the chain of nobles, but the scoring for claiming cities, you get to for every two cities you have, you score one additional point. So it just lets you get that runaway momentum city scoring a little bit sooner. So if you can set, well, we talked about this one already. It's great. I like this one a lot, but it is specific to certain positions, just like all these tiles, and it makes the decision around when to take them quite interesting. It's definitely it's it's. It's unique that it's helpful late game. Yeah, I think so. And then, but it is, yeah, it's good. It's it's good. Oh, you think it's? Helpful. I think it's better mid, think? early mid, so you can get the points running. Mm. But late game, you're if more you're likely a bit to, behind. Yeah, and late game, you're more likely to have more cities scored already. So it's, it's maybe it's giving you three or four extra points. Yeah, it can it can be a lot. It's going to add up, right? If that scores. It's giving you four extra points each time it's scored, mm-hmm. and you do that three times, it's better than the 10. Right. Yeah. Um, that's not unlikely. Then there's two sort of advanced tiles that the game says not to use in your initial plays, just because they really warp the decisions in the game. One of those allows you to make connections through empty spaces on land masses. So for you, your any of your tiles connected by an empty space on a specific landmass to another one of your tiles counts as being connected. So if you take this one, that really forces other people to jump in and block empty spaces um, and kind of close off the map because all of a sudden you're, all of your cities are connected, potentially. Mm. We, did, we haven't played with these ones a lot because we haven't felt the need to add them in yet. And I think for us at two players, a lot of these two advanced tiles, I think, are more interesting on the slightly larger boards at three or four players. That makes sense. Which we'll talk about in a second. The final one is just that same idea, except your tiles count as being connected when they're touching the water spaces running through the middle of the board that trisect the board. Um, so all of a sudden, if you have tiles on the left side of a river and the right side of the river, you don't have to take that downbeat off-tempo turn oh, wow. place in the river. It just counts as being connected, and it, someone else has to block block you place in the river to prevent a connection from occurring seems like we should give it a try yeah so these tiles get a lot of attention yeah because it solves your rules problem yeah totally um these tiles get a lot of attention because Kinesia doesn't typically do sort of uniqueish player powers these aren't assigned at the start of the game but chosen mm. uh, and i think that they're really well implemented they fit perfectly within the game and they're very fun so they're one of my favorite things they're about so the game fun. overall yeah this is also an area where Kinesia doesn't really do expansions for his games i don't think i haven't seen many of them he's much more likely to do a new version like if modern art was successful so we did modern art the card game it's not likely he'll go back to it mm. um, but Babylonia having more of these tiles there's like so much room for an expansion potentially that another designer might take mm. advantage of but i don't think we'll ever see it i think it's probably this is that so i think the the final sort of thing to talk about is what we just briefly talked about which is how one of, for me, the things that really sets Babylonia apart from some of the other tiling games is that it scales by player count. You have a little bit of that in Through the Desert, but not as much. 
And I think that it's really cool how it works in Babylonia, which is that the board itself, right, depicts these three land masses, north, center, and south, and they're split, trisected by these two rivers, the Tigris and the Euphrates. In the two-player game, you just play on the north and center side of the board, so you have one river. In the three-player game, you just play on the center and the south side of the board. Those are The south side is slightly larger than the north side, so it makes the board a little bit bigger. Then you just have the one Euphrates River running through it. And then in a four-player game, you play in the north, center, and south. You have both rivers. You're playing on the full board. And this just ensures that you have that consistent conflict, that the game feels mostly the same. And I love it because... It's always Babylonia. It always feels like Babylonia, mm -hmm. but your strategic considerations when there's multiple different land masses in play really changes it. Mm -hmm. So it almost feels like you have three maps in the box that you're playing with Yep. because it feels slightly different at each player count that it makes me just want to go back. Like we've played it a bunch at two and I'll keep playing it a bunch at two, but I'd love to play it that much at three and I'd love to play it that much at four. Right. You know, because you're especially in just in terms of where you start. Um, and where you make those connections. Yeah. And because connecting in the center of the board really matters, right? It's it changes it when it's a really large board because all of a sudden you're not going to be able to just connect through the center. Like in the two-player game, we end up fighting over that middle little peninsula a lot yeah, and over that ziggurat because it's so central and both players can be there because it's a smaller board. But in a four-player game, like the one we played last night, you really have to figure out where on the board you're competing because you cannot be everywhere. It's right. impossible. Um, and there's some of that at two, but you start to feel it a little more at three and you really feel it at four. And there's strategic decisions around where in the board, based on those early setups I'm going to, start to come to the forefront even more. Yeah. Yeah. It's hard because I, I can't tell if I just feel like the two board is more cramped because <laughs> it's so much fightier or if actually mathematically it, mm. it's constructed that way. But I would say that the two to three to four maps, yeah, um, you know, it feel it's 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 hard to choose what is more enjoyable in a way that yeah. I don't see with some of our other games where we love it at two, we hate it at four. Sure, we love it at four, we hate it at two. Yeah, we just kind of love it at all player counts. Yeah, yeah, we really do. But you do feel because the conflict at two players is zero sum, mm -hmm. you feel it more, and you're more encouraged to do it at two players because if I'm hurting you, I'm helping myself. Whereas mm -hmm. in a four player game. If I go try to hurt someone else, mm -hmm. I'm maybe hurting myself and hurting them and helping you too, mm. right? So the incentive to do it is reduced a little bit. In the four player. In the four player. It still happens. I see. But you build to it more than you do, I'm just going to come over and try to kind of knife your position. So you can be much more on offense in the two player. I think so. Yeah, I you think you can play right. a little more fighty, a little more aggressive. I think you're right. There's times where you have to do that in a four player game. Mm -hmm. and it, But I think it's a little bit less likely. But it, right. ultimately it fills up. The center gets busy. People are trying to make connections. You can't You can't do it. You're right. going to get blocked. So right. it's still, still preserved. Um, but yeah, that's just something that I really love about this game. So I think... Maybe as we move towards the close of this episode, Maya, thank you so much for being on. It's been so fun to talk to you on air, on Decision Space, uh, kind of having one of the conversations that normally we would have after a game. I think I would want to just, I kind of would want to do this all the time. And you are so lovely and have this appetite to talk to me about games and then kind of say enough is enough. So I appreciate you jumping on the show and talking with us <laughs> Well, more. now I really want to play a game. I know. We, maybe tonight we'll play another <laughs> game of Babylonia. Do you have any closing sort of thoughts on Babylonia before we move to the end of the episode? 
I think that maybe I was a little too hard on the design of the, the board. board initially. Yeah. Because the more we've been talking, you know, I don't follow games in terms of what type of game they are as much as you. Mm, sure. But hearing you talk, I see that it's a tile laying game, maybe inspired by war games a little bit. Oh, I wonder. No, you don't think so? I, I think that the aesthetic is kind of evoking the, the, something classic. Right. The aesthetic, I suppose, is trying to prepare me for the fact that oh. it is um, so fighty and so strategic. Um, you know, in t- compared to, I think, often tile laying games are more puzzly and introspective mm. and charming sure something like calico like a personal tiling game yes um and you know and this is showing me visually that i need to keep my wits about me and be ready for conflict (laughs) check even which you know are secret hidden spots on the board i have to fill before Mm. i get a particular city just like that you've made in your head as like a secret hidden goal for yourself (laughs) yeah i also that's interesting we the cover of Babylonia is incredible, beautiful. wonderful, beautiful cover, and it makes you wish the board was that beautiful. I kind of love this game despite its presentation and want there to be a new version that sort mm. of cover takes the cover aesthetic yes. and just takes that and splashes little, it on the board. A little lusher. A little lusher. Yep. The Babylonia we imagine exists, whereas the, the what's in front of us is probably the one that the didn't exist. The lushness of play is absolutely there. Yep. I think for my closing thoughts too, I just hope that. Uh, I love Babylonia. I hope I've talked about it a ton on the show. I'll probably keep talking about it a ton. This is really one of those rare games that I feel will have a place in our collection forever. And Mm -hmm. it's a game that we just really enjoy. Uh, So I encourage you to give it a look, to give it a try. Uh, And then to close the show, you know, we, one of the ways, if you've enjoyed this episode with Maya and I, with uh, any other episode with, with Jake and I, we encourage you to go listen to more episodes. And if you want to support the show, One of the ways that you can best do that is either by telling a friend who plays games about decision space or by leaving a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you find your podcast. It goes so far. From time to time, we like to read a review from the show. So I think, Maya, if you're willing, will you read the review this week? Uh, So you have the title here and then the name of the person who did it. So we always like to read that out uh, just as a way of acknowledging and saying things. Okay, so the review is titled... In a time of oversaturation of board game podcasts, dot, dot, dot. Um, and this review is by Razor, Ray Zor 6 I've been in the hobby for a while and have gone through wanting to ingest as much board game podcasts as I can during my long commute back and forth each day. As the years pass, I have gotten way more picky on who I listen to. They need to really bring something to the table. Decision Space is a wonderful podcast that does as advertised. If you are in the hobby, you know that some of the best times are right after playing a game and discussing it. With this podcast, you feel like you are truly getting some in-depth discussion that really challenges your own perspective and gives you things you might not have considered. They're also good when talking about a game you haven't played yet because they can help you decide if it sounds good or not. Thank you, Jacob and Brendan, for all you do on the show, and especially your enthusiasm for the hobby and this specific part of it. You are both great. So this is like one of the nicest reviews we've ever gotten on the show. It's so wonderful. Thank you so much, Razor, for leaving this review and also just for your kind words. It really does go, it really brightens Jake and I's days when we see it. So it means a lot. I really think that I 
completely agree in terms of the depth of discussion. You're very sweet. You're, all, you're on my team, though. That's my review. That's your review, yeah. And Maya, you've done an amazing job this episode. So thank you so much for joining me for discussing Babylonia. If you listeners enjoyed Maya's presence on the show too, I'd love for you to let us know. And I'd also love to hear from you in our Discord. You can find a link to that in our show notes. It's sort of a chat room through your own web browser where there's lots of people like you who love games and listen to Decision Space that want to talk about it. I'd love to hear your thoughts on this episode, on Babylonia, on Kinesia tiling games generally, and maybe what your favorite ziggurat power card is. Uh, until next time, thank you to Hembry for our intro and outro song, Reach Out. And for all of our pre-planners, don't worry, we have My City coming up. We're going to keep the Kinesia fun going. Maya and I have played the campaign multiple times, and I would say we are completely addicted to the board game arena implementation. Uh of the eternal game and then in the future we're going to cover the resistance and messina 1347 uh, and until next time thanks y'all bye